The Book of the Revelation of Jesus. The author of this book, which is not called Revelations, by the way, is named at the beginning. It was written by John, which could refer to the beloved disciple who wrote the Gospel and the letters of John, or it could be a different John, a Messianic Jewish prophet who traveled about and taught in the early church. Whichever John it was, he makes clear in the opening paragraph what kind of book he has written. He calls it, first of all, a revelation or apocalypse. The Greek word is apokalypsis, and it refers to a type of literature very familiar to John's readers from the Hebrew scriptures and from other popular Jewish texts. Apocalypses recounted a prophet's symbolic dreams and visions that revealed God's heavenly perspective on history and current events so that the present could be viewed in light of history's final outcome. And John says this apocalypse is a prophecy, which means it's a word from God spoken through a prophet to God's people, usually to warn or comfort them in a time of crisis. By calling this book a prophecy, John's saying that it stands in the tradition of the biblical prophets and is bringing their message to a climax. And this apocalyptic prophecy was sent to real people that John knew. The book opens and closes as a circular letter that was sent to seven churches in the ancient Roman province of Asia. Now, seven is a meaningful number for John. It's a symbol of completeness based on the seven-day Sabbath cycle in the Old Testament. And John has woven sevens into every single part of this book. Now, with this opening, John has given us clear guidance about how he wants us to understand this book. Jewish apocalypses communicated through symbolic imagery and numbers. It is not a secret predictive code about the timing of the end of the world. Rather, John is constantly using these symbols that are drawn from the Old Testament, and he expects his readers to go discover what the symbols mean by looking up the text he's alluding to. Also, the fact that it's a letter means that John is actually addressing the situation of these first century churches. And so while this book has much to say to Christians of later generations, the book's meaning must first be anchored in the historical context of John's time, place, and audience. Would you pray with me? <clears throat> Heavenly Father, pour out your Holy Spirit on me and on all of us gathered here. Lord, take my words and make them yours. Take all of our thoughts and make them yours. And take our hearts and set them on fire for you. Father, we love you. We ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, you're probably wondering what Revelation has to do with Christmas and why we're talking about a seven-headed dragon instead of eight reindeer in a sleigh. <laughs> and fair enough. Um, and there's, there's really two reasons, because you know, first of all, if you're reading along in our one-year Bible reading plan, you're reading the book of Revelation right now, and it seemed profoundly unfair of me to ask you to read it and then not teach about it. Um, so in addition to preaching through it on Sunday mornings, the, the midweek podcast we put out will also be dealing with Revelation. But the other reason is that once you really get into the book of Revelation and begin to understand what it's saying, it really is just about the most Christmassy book in the Bible. So this is an apocalypse. And when we hear the word apocalypse, we think of like the end of the world or some cataclysmic event that destroys civilization. But that's not actually what apocalypse means. It's not what it is. An apocalypse is really a genre of literature, and, and the word refers to uh, revealing or unveiling, and the implication is that when you read an apocalypse, what you are really getting 
is, is you are getting a vision of the world as it really is, with all of our own biases stripped away. And the Bible actually is full of little apocalypses. Ezekiel has, uh, has apocalypses in it. The book of Daniel is apocalyptic. Uh, there are little bits and pieces throughout the prophetic books that are apocalyptic. Jesus himself in several spots, especially in Matthew and Mark, is apocalyptic in the way that he speaks. And so then we finally come to Revelation. And, and all of these apocalypses, they have two main functions. First, they encourage and comfort either Jewish or Christian believers during these severe trials or in the immediate aftermath of a major disaster when all seems lost and they begin to doubt the goodness of God. And then they, they challenge the reader or the hearer to uh, adopt a new perspective on reality, a new perspective in light of a judgment that's coming, and then to live and to adjust the way they live according to that perspective. So John's visions that he records in the book of Revelation provide a heavenly perspective on our reality. So you could say we don't interpret the book. The book is interpreting us. And in particular, what the book does is it encourages the people who follow Jesus to hope in his future return while also changing our perspective on the present world we live in, motivating us to live as Jesus calls us to live. Even in the face of adversity, even when it seems like there's no point, even when it seems like evil is winning, it motivates you to persevere in faith. And by the way, this book includes more Old Testament references than any other book in the New Testament. You literally cannot understand the book of Revelation if you haven't read the Old Testament, in particular the books of Ezekiel and Daniel. So I'll say it again. You have to read the Old Testament. <laughs> I know it's hard and people don't like to read it, but the fact of the matter is nothing in the New Testament makes sense on its own. The Bible is one book. You can't understand what happens in the New Testament if you have not read the Old Testament. Because every New Testament book calls back to things in the Old Testament, and Revelation does it more than any other. Almost every one of the symbols in John's vision is tied to a symbol from the Old Testament. So we're going to dive right in. Just in the first chapter, Revelation 1, 4 through 6. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you, from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. So this is just his greeting to open the letter, but he tells us a lot about who God is in his greeting. So he starts off right with reference to the one who was and who is and who is to come, and that is identifying one person of the Trinity, the Father. But it's also calling back into the book of Exodus. So already the Old Testament references have started. He's referencing that time when, when Moses is standing before the burning bush and asks God to identify himself, and God responds with, I am who I am. 
The implication being that God is the only self-sufficient being. All other existence is contingent on God. No thing and no one can even exist apart from God. And he is to come. Which means not just that God is eternal, but that there is something God has not yet done. That the work that he started in the Gospels is not yet complete. He's coming back to consummate his kingdom. Um, You have the seven spirits before his throne, which is just the Holy Spirit. So remember, the number seven in Revelation is symbolic. Seven symbolizes perfection and completeness because of the seven days of creation in Genesis. So anytime you see that number popping up, it's a symbol for perfection, for completeness, for wholeness. So this is just a reference to the Holy Spirit and then Jesus. This is one of those sort of texts that gives us the foundation for identifying God as Trinity, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So he's emphasizing all throughout the the changelessness and the perfection of God. God is the beginning and the end of all reality. And God is on the throne. The Father sits on the throne. Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. And he's made us, his followers, a kingdom of priests. And so Jesus is this majestic figure. And the truth that John is trying to get at, that he's trying to reveal just in the greeting of his letter, is that God is sovereign. He's the ruler of all creation. He is already ruling. Any other rulers who exist do so only under God's sovereignty. And then he calls us the kingdom of priests. This is important. All of Christ's followers are called priests. And even in the Old Testament, by the way, the people of Israel are called a royal priesthood. So they have their own priests, but the whole people have some sort of priestly role. So a priest is someone who talks to God on behalf of men and who talks to men on behalf of God. They're the intermediary. We've all been assigned that responsibility to pray to God on behalf of the world and to witness to the gospel on God's behalf to the whole world. But priests also offer sacrifices on behalf of the people, and all believers are called to make themselves the sacrificial offering. You might recall when we celebrate communion, we refer to ourselves in that liturgy as a living sacrifice. These are divinely ordained responsibilities for all Christians, not just for the special professional Christians who you hire to come up here and talk to you on Sunday mornings. This is something that is assigned to every Christian. There is no elite class of special Christians who have the job of praying for other people. There are only people who choose to follow Jesus and are made priests of God in the process. Everyone has the responsibility to pray to God for the whole world. And everyone has the responsibility to witness to the goodness and love and mercy of God to the whole world. No one gets out of it. It is the calling and the duty of every single Christian. You see why I always tell you it's not enough to come to church on Sunday mornings. Being a Christian isn't about where you worship. It is about how you live. Because you're called to be a people set apart. So now we're going to skip ahead a little bit into Revelation 4. Verses 8 through 10. 
And this is in the middle of this bizarre vision that he has of being in the throne room in heaven. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all round, even under its wings. Day and night they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before the throne and they worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. and By your will they were created and have their being. So God is holy. Don't get hung up on the creepy living things before the throne. I know it's easy. They're weird looking, and there's, we could probably do, spend a whole week doing nothing but a deep dive into all the symbols. But don't get hung up on that because they're not actually the point of the passage. The point is God is holy and God is in charge. In John's world, the world of the churches he's writing to, evil was rampant and powerful. Goodness looked weak. Quite literally, things that we identify as goodness, kindness and compassion and mercy, those were considered weaknesses. Might makes right was the only ethical and moral way to live. If you were strong, it was good for you to dominate the weak, and if you were weak, it was good for you to be subservient or even enslaved. That was the natural order of things. It is a world so alien to us, we sometimes have a hard time comprehending how that could be the case. But it doesn't take long to study the history of that time before you realize that really is how the world was. And so, what God is revealing to John is that appearances are deceptive. Because God is holy, God is good, God is pure, and it is God who truly rules. Real power does not come from evil. Real power does not come from strength or military might or money or violence or cruelty. Real power comes from from God, and it always looks like love and sacrifice. There will be references all throughout Revelation to Christ's followers conquering in his name. And so very often people interpret this as like a really militaristic book, and you'll see paintings with the followers of Christ conquering the world, and and you might hear sermons from pastors who aren't as good as me saying things like that. And he does use that language of of the followers of the Lamb conquering. But if you pay attention, they don't conquer through battle. They don't conquer through strength. They don't conquer through violence. They conquer exclusively through love and sacrifice. In the same way that Jesus conquered death by dying and rising again, the followers of the Lamb in Revelation conquer by offering themselves up as a sacrifice. He references the martyrs in the story, people who died for their faith, and specifically calls them the ones who've conquered. The ones who laid down their life willingly are the ones who conquered. This is not a vision of violent triumph. They conquer through love and sacrifice because that is where real power lies. The sacrificial, selfless love of God. Jesus conquers by dying and rising again. Death is the ultimate 
weapon of the tyrant. And Jesus has taken it away. And so God is not a passing thing. He was, he is, he is to come. He's eternal, he's unchanging. And the elders before the throne in this vision cast their crowns before him because all other sovereignty must ultimately yield to his. God is on the throne. I think very often we misidentify Jesus. We call him our friend. We like that one. We call him our Savior, which is great. He is our Savior. But we like to think of him as the guy who died once to save us all those years ago and then left us alone. Or he's our healer. And he is all those things, but he's something more as well. And our problem is we would, we would rather come up with what we want him to be and impose that identity on him rather than accepting who he tells us he is. And to help illustrate that point, I've got a video clip. I do too. I know you're Scott Calvin. You know you're Scott Calvin. So let's make this simple. I say name, you say Scott Calvin. Name? Chris Craven. Name? Santa Claus. Name? Père Noël. Babo Natale. Père's Nicole. Papa Gigio. Okay, Calvin. Maybe a couple hours in the tank will change your mind. If you don't recognize it, it's from the greatest Christmas movie of all time. Uh, so the story goes, right, that he becomes Santa Claus as a middle-aged man with a kid and an ex-wife, right? Just like the fairy tales always say. And, of course, nobody believes him except his little child. No one else listens to him, even though, actually, the evidence is pretty convincing, right? I mean, he gains weight overnight to get the bowl full of jelly going, um, right? He grows out the beard and the white hair overnight. I mean, he turns into Santa Claus overnight, and no one believes him. And over the course of the movie, his, his ex-wife and her husband try to take his child away and, and prevent him from seeing him because they think he's gone crazy. Obviously, he gets arrested. At one point, a bunch of elves bust him out of prison, which you'd think would be pretty convincing evidence. The amazing thing is, it's all right there for them to see if they just had eyes to see it. Believe him. Because what he's asking them to believe is unbelievable. He tells them over and over again, this is who I am. And they say, no, you're not. You're Scott Calvin. I mean, you just saw it. I know what your name is. Stop telling me something different. See, this so often is what we do with Jesus. We decide who we want him to be and then we try to impose that identity on him. And then we, we don't listen when he tells us that is not who I am. All throughout the Gospels and here again in Revelation, Jesus insists that he is king. He is the Lord of all creation. His parting words to his disciples are, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And it's true that he is our savior and he is our friend and he is our healer. 
Those, however, are only a portion of who Jesus is. He is our king. He is sovereign. And this creates some problems for us. Because he insists that he is already Lord of all creation. He is sovereign on the throne. All rulers who exist, every government that exists, only exists because he has given it authority. That's an issue in Paul's letters too. Paul, Paul states that pretty explicitly from time to time, that these governments exist because God has granted them authority. Which raises some problems for us because quite a few governments don't seem to be all that Christian. And what are we to do with that? What does it mean that, that the whole world, including all of these governments, including every corrupt government, including every evil dictatorship out there, is under the authority of God and exists because God has given them authority? First, there, there is a theme all throughout the Bible, beginning right in the opening words of Genesis through to the very end, that God desires order in the world. That, that order, even if it is corrupt, imperfect order brought on by an evil government, is still preferable to anarchy and chaos. And my friends, if you don't believe that, you might want to talk to someone who's lived in the Middle East for the past 20 years and see what happens when corrupt order is brought down and replaced with anarchy and chaos. This is a theme all throughout Scripture. God desires order. And he will take imperfect order over chaos every time. And in fact, the early church was entirely unconcerned with how a leader rose to power. They didn't care all that much if someone seized power in a military coup, if they were born into it, or if they were elected into it. What they cared about a great deal, however, is how that leader used their power once they had it. Because God is sovereign. And every ruler of every nation will have to answer to God one day. Every one of them, whether they believe in God or not, every one of them is accountable to the Lord of all creation. They're going to have to stand before the throne of God and answer for how they ruled. And in some sense, that really should be comforting and hopeful for us because that means that all of the most wicked and evil rulers of history will not get away with it. No matter what, they will face justice. All the, the most infamous figures like Adolf Hitler and Joseph Stalin, modern leaders like, like Kim Jong-un in North Korea and Xi Jinping in China, all will stand before God in judgment. All will be held accountable. All will have to answer for what they do. That includes all the people we elect, by the way. And it might make us want to consider whether or not we will be held accountable for the people we send to represent us in government. If you think character doesn't matter in an election, you might want to think again. And it also means that we, as the kingdom of priests, as God's representatives here on earth, we have a responsibility then to call our rulers to account. To remind them of who is ultimately in charge. This is what the Old Testament prophets were tasked with doing. It's our job now to remind people that, that God is in charge. And you are accountable to him. In John's time, that quite literally meant reminding people that Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. And there is a ton of language in the Gospels, in Paul's letters, in Revelation, that uses all of the symbolism of the Roman Empire to refer to Jesus. That he is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That he is the Prince of Peace, which is Augustine's title. 
Augustus' title. They use all the titles that they give to the Roman Empire and ascribe them to Jesus to make the point really clear. That man's not the Lord. This one on the cross is. Which very often put them in mortal danger. And Jesus himself faced that danger as an infant, right? This is why when he was born, the first thing Herod does when he learns there's a new king of the Jews is he orders all male children under the age of two to be killed. That's why Jesus and Mary and Joseph flee to Egypt until Jesus is over two years of age. There is danger here. There is danger in opposing the powers that be. And later on in the book, there's going to be this really strong contrast in Revelation between God's throne and the throne set up to oppose him. Because you get this seven-headed dragon, and then there's, there's the beast who we kind of identify as the Antichrist. All the fun symbolism you want to hear about at Christmas. So the dragon is symbolic of the Roman Empire. The beast then is symbolic of the emperor who sits on the throne of Rome. And so there is this really strong contrast between God's throne and the throne that the beast sits on. God's throne is legitimate and pure and true. And the, the dragon and the beast, they, they are competing with God for sovereignty. Rome is competing with God for sovereignty. And while that is a very clear, specific historical reference, it, it doesn't stop there. It can represent any competing claim, anything that tries to compete with God's claim of sovereignty over all creation. It applies to every government that exists right now. And I would say it goes a bit farther. It also applies to those things that might be competing in your heart with God's place. All the things that you might prefer to serve instead of God. Whether it's your own ambition, whether it's your, your political ideology that you might prefer to the Gospels, because we all have that. Whatever it may be, this can apply. But we should not forget that the primary point here is that there is nothing and no one who can successfully challenge God's claim to rule. They will fail. Everything and everyone that tries to oppose God has already lost. It's not even a competition. See, we don't celebrate Christmas just to remember what happened 2,000 years ago. We celebrate it because Christmas is an event that points forward to our ultimate future. The birth of Jesus is the beginning of the end. All those crazy street preachers talking about how the end is near and the end times are about to begin, they're wrong. The end times are not about to begin. The end times began 2,000 years ago with a baby in a manger. We are living in the end times. This is the end game. We don't know when Jesus is coming back, but we know he is. And the book of Revelation is not the, the future history of what happens when he comes back. That's not the point of it. It describes historical events, it describes present events, and it tells us that in the end all things will be okay. But this revelation to John reveals why we have reason to celebrate. God is sovereign on the throne. 
He rules over all creation, and even the most corrupt governments in the world only rule because God is allowing them to for now. But the time is coming when God will demand that every ruler cast down their crowns before him. We are approaching the day when God will remove the veil between heaven and earth, and Jesus will rule creation directly. Take a second and think about what the world would be like if there was no politics, no corrupt governments, no dictators, no political parties, only Jesus ruling in perfection with perfect wisdom, with perfect love. This is what John is trying to tell people. He's speaking to a bunch of Christians who are already being persecuted and it's only going to get worse. Part of that revelation is that there are Roman emperors coming who will amp up the level of opposition to the gospel. That life as a Christian in the Roman Empire is going to get more difficult before it gets better. And in the midst of all that, he is saying to them, even though, even though, you may lay down your life for the gospel. You will not lose. Because that is how we conquer the evil in this world. By showing them that death itself no longer has power. By believing that Jesus is the one who is truly in charge, that all power truly comes from God, and that he has already overcome that our ultimate future is safe in his hands, no matter what. This is going to happen. Jesus will return. We don't know when. And, and scripture is abundantly clear that no one will ever know when. So you don't have to listen to the crazy guy saying it's going to happen on May 31st next year. It's nonsense but we know it will happen. It could be tomorrow. It could be 10,000 years from now. But the birth of Christ tells us that the day is coming when every knee will bow before the Lamb and we can already live now in his kingdom as his priests, as his representatives on earth. You see, so often we, we trivialize Christmas a little bit. And it's not just the way that we commercialize it, right? I mean, normally that's the focus, right? We, we complain and moan over how over-commercialized Christmas is and how it, it takes away from the spirit of the season. And that's true. There's no doubting that. But so often, even within the church, the way we try and take it back is nothing more than, than making it into a heartwarming story about, about love and peace or generosity or some vague idea about the magic of Christmas. I mean, you've seen the Hallmark movies. And, and look, to be clear, I love all that stuff, except the Hallmark movies. <laughs> if you like them, Jesus still loves you, but... I, I love getting, I love the decorations, I, I love watching Christmas movies with my family, the good ones, not the Hallmark ones. Um, I love it. I love watching my daughter open presents, I love decorating the house, it's great. I get into the spirit just like everyone else. But we cannot allow ourselves to just think that that's all it's about. A heartwarming story from 2,000 years ago. 
Because at the end of the day, Christmas is a radical thing. It's a direct challenge to the powers that be. A statement that God is in charge and you are accountable to him. You do not have boundless authority. Whatever you do here on earth, you will have to answer for. See, this is why it's a season of hope for us. Because we know that no matter what happens here, no matter who gets elected, no matter what happens in our immediate future, we know that our ultimate future is secure because it is in God's hands. There is so much that happens in this world that can take away our hope. We lament when it seems as though evil people have escaped justice. But nobody escapes justice. We lament when it looks like evil is winning, but evil can never win. There is great, great symbolism in the fact that Christmas always occurs around the winter solstice, the literal darkest day of the year. We celebrate the day that light came into the world because it reminds us, it reminds us that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not, cannot, and will not overcome it. The birth of Christ is the beginning of the end. On Christmas, God proclaimed that he is king of all creation. He is the sovereign on the throne and he is going to bring all of creation, every nation, every ruler to heal under his sovereignty. We celebrate his birth because of what it means for us right now and what it means for our future. God is already king. He will be king forevermore. There is no escaping his sovereignty. Thanks be to God, he was he is, and he is to come. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.